Hello there, it's Nick, back once again, but I've got to tell you, I'm feeling a little bit disappointed today. I'll try and never get back to me about my remix. I mean, what's that about? How rude. However, being the resolute soul that I am, I will carry on regardless and introduce episode 3 of the irreverent history of Ulster. From Border Reaver to Banjo Weaver. To learn of the past, the answers can't be asked. It's researching such a mystery. So I'll grab this podcast and I'll learn at last of Ulster's irreverent history. This podcast, I'm going to start out with a confession. Now, it's not going to make it in the Jeremy Kyle show or the Jerry Springer show if you're from back in the day, so cool your jets. But sometimes, just sometimes, I go full YouTube. See, wasn't that bad, was it? Just sometimes I get bored. The wife's watching some mind-numbing reality show, the kids are in bed, it's just me, some rum, and the wild world of YouTube. Like, I rarely remember all the videos I watched, but at some point I will invariably end up watching clips of rednecks and hillbillies doing some wacky shit like, like slingshotting on giant elastic bands or skiing around in puddles being pulled by a giant mechanical digger, just some real mad sort of shit. To be fair though, this seemed easy to please and attempt my life, it's kind of cool. Give them some beer, maybe a pickup truck and a gun, strum some strings, and you have yourself a happy hillbilly. I'm stereotyping there, I assume, but I have to be honest, something about their ways have always appealed to me. I just suppose that it was it was, it was how simple it all seemed, like like the clumpets from the Beverly Hillbillies, or the bear cartoon that parodied the parody, or their mad music, you know, with the banjo and the fiddle, and the kegs of moonshine. There was just an eerie familiarity about them. Then one night, my life could flip, turned upside down, when I found out that I may just share a similar heritage to those crazy cats. You want to hear more? Well, you know the drill. Grab a seat, strap in, and let's get cracking. Do you understand this? We'll have to go back, way back, well, not quite a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, more about 800 years ago when maybe 120 odd miles to Scotland and Stirling Bridge where William Wallace led his Scots farmers to victory over the hated English. You know, he was sick of Prima Nocta, and he was driven by the loss of his fiancée, Mirren. And Wallace took on the English army, which was the biggest and the best in Europe at the time, and whooped their ass. The year was 1297, and a turning point in Britain. The Scots started raiding Northern England, sensing weakness. And allayed slightly by defeat at Falkirk in 1298, the issue was settled once again at Bannockburn in 1314, where Robert de Bruce, now King of Scotland, defeated the English under Edward II, opening up the north of England to Scottish raiders once more. The Declaration of Arbroath followed in 1312, affirming to the Pope, no less, Scotland's belief that they were an independent nation under the rule of the Bruce, leading to the Treaty of Edinburgh, Northampton in 1328, where England legally acknowledged and affirmed Scotland's independence. Yeah, okay, that seems a bit dry. And you may wonder what the hell I'm yammering on about Scotland and raids in England for, but just indulge me for a minute here. I'm working my way to a point. Now, despite this treaty, there was constant animosity still between the old enemy. Many nobles in England were a bit pissed off that they had lost their rights to lands in Scotland, lands their families had acquired through years of hard butchery and manipulation, and the Scottish nobles were aggrieved at the English for, well, just being bloody English. Over the next few centuries, battles and skirmishes were commonplace, all happening within the border region. They became a wasteland, a land of devastation and desolation, 
and it was there in that hive of scum and villainy that the very genesis of the Border Reavers sprang into fruition. Ah, the Border Reavers, at last we meet. But just who were these illustrious strangers? Well, they were scum, killers, rapists, thieves and vagabonds. At least that's how they were seen outside of their clans. To reave is an old term meaning to rob, and rob they did. As we said, the borders were no place for crops, but great for grazing cattle, which also meant great for stealing cattle, which they did with wild abandon, not to mention acts of debauchery such as arson, murder and kidnapping. You can imagine a mum in the northern counties of England telling her naughty kids that they better be good or the reavers will come for them at night. One such reaver was Geordie Byrne. He was a bit of a lad. On the night before he was killed, he professed to have lain with 40 men's wives, killed seven Englishmen with his bare hands, and spent the rest of his time whoring, drinking, and stealing. Sounds like a bit of good crack, don't I? Reminiscent of Ulster's favourite son, Georgie Best, and his comments on how he spent all of his money on booze, birds, and fast cars, and the rest he wasted. To a border reaver, life, it was all about blood, both spilling that of your rivals and the bond of your family's blood that ran deep in your veins. They operated in clans, a community abandoned by their countries, left to scrap it out in the wilderness. They showed loyalty only to their family and only to their kin, with feuds between clans notoriously lasting lifetimes, if not longer. Their MO was to raid at night, covering more distance as the winter evening stretched, so raiding deeper into both Scotland and England, sometimes well outside their defined regions of operation. Both governments at the time attempted to impose law on the area, but the high hills were great for hiding, and lawlessness prevailed. Things got so bad that in 1530, James V of Scotland called a parley of peace. He wanted to discuss terms and attempt to pacify the clan. A notorious plunderer and scoundrel, a real menace to society known as Johnny Armstrong, rode at the head of the group, representing the Beatties, the Elliots, the Irvines and the Littles. They were the baddest of the bad bastards, but apart from the king, as despite promising safe passage, he hung 36 of them on the spot. Now that in itself isn't funny, but the fact that I have numerous close mates with all of those surnames kind of gives me a better understanding of why our knights are are so mental. I suppose it kind of gives them an excuse for being mental. So win-win. Can we add Keenan's in there? The end of the Reaver's time in Scotland was nigh when James VI of Scotland ascended to the throne of England in 1603, becoming James I. He was the son of the Catholic Mary Queen of Scots, who had been executed by his predecessor in the throne room, Elizabeth I. Her of the black teeth and Mary's cousin, which must have made for a pleasant Christmas dinner conversation. As King of Scotland, James had endured the Reavers' existence through gritted teeth, tolerating their outlandish behaviour as their presence acted like a buffer between the two kingdoms. However, now that he was king of both countries, they were like a pimple in the prom queen's face, you know, and he took the decision to eradicate their menace from society. He issued a proclamation against all rebels and disorderly persons and set up a commission to implement jettered justice or trial after execution. It's a bit busy just death. In its first year, the commission broke the Guinness World Record for reavers caught and hanged. The totaliser showed 79, and they even called in Norris McWhorter and Roy Castle, just to be sure. In the preceding years, they caught scores more, but never reached the same heady heights. They need not have worried. The message had gotten through. The game was up, and the reavers knew it. They needed an out, and by the will of God, one just so happened to come along. In 1607, as was mentioned in the last podcast about Nile of the Nine Hostages, which you can get in iTunes or whatever, the flight of the Earl saw the last of the heavy bit O'Neills leave the province on a boat from Loxwilly. It left a vacuum of power in Ulster, and James, he, uh, he saw an opportunity, both to make money to pay for his new lavish lifestyle, living in London and partying and having a good time, 
and also to rid himself of the scourge of the borders. He pitched a mass plantation to the city of London. He told them how they could have vast estates in the province at very reasonable fees. The plan was to appeal to the northern English, promising land and prosperity, and equally just to banish the reavers to the banded country of Western Ulster. Some companies took up the offer of cheap land, but they struggled to get the manpower from the English alone, so they forwarded on the invite to the lowly Scottish. And guess what? They jumped at the chance in vast numbers. It must have been some sight. All those ships sailing the Irish Sea, passengers wide-eyed and resplendent the Nessie hats and sparrings, chewing on haggis and drinking skull lager, especially to the Catholic locals, just looking down Belfast Lock as the procession of boats rolled by. If that doesn't make you grab your shillelagh and prepare for war, what would? Just like under the O'Neill in the early days of Nile, many natives rehoused, which is, yes, a gentle euphemism. They were moved from their settled lands and forced to the far reaches of Ulster, some even pushed into the other provinces. By the end of the plantation, only a quarter of Ulster was still under Catholic ownership. The English who controlled most of the lands were of the Anglican faith. But the Scots, they had undergone a Protestant reformation in the mid-16th century and were seen as lower-class citizens, though still a step above the indigenous population. Within those Scots numbers were the Reavers, and they were custom-designed for the move. Their very nature was like a hard-coded program of raiding and fighting and struggling for survival, and they thrived in the open frontier of wild, wild Ulster. They were also the bane of the designers' lives. Many architects had spent countless hours, like, meticulously planning every detail, mapping out the boundaries, apportioning plots to the right kind of people, but if the reavers didn't like what they were given, they just went and grabbed one they liked better. And with their reputation, who would argue, are you going to be the one to tell a reaver that he's in your house? You know, you're walking over all polite to debate the situation, and he answers the door wearing the skin of the last man to cross his path? Nah, me neither. In 1640, Charles I was the King of England, and he felt absolutely no love for the Ulster Scots, as the planters now became known, or Scots-Irish in the US, because they just can't leave language alone, can they? Many Ulster Scots, in what Charles saw as a, a direct assault on his position as head of, of state and church, signed a document known as the Scottish Covenant. It declared their loyalty to God above all, including the king, especially the king. Also getting a wee sneaky dig in against the Pope, you know, the head of the Catholic Church, by denouncing him from his lofty position, effectively aiming a two-fingered salute at the Vatican. Something that would become quite a tradition within the Ulster Scots community. As a sign of things to come, they wore lovely red scarves made from local cloth to symbolise their unity, their brotherhood, and to reinforce their position as dissenters to the Crown's policy of conformism. Charles made his feelings clear in public and called them rebels. He was king, and he ruled by the will of God, by divine right, which is a policy that served him well for oh, the next decade until he lost his head in the fight with the guillotine, that is. Now, the ramifications of his open hostility were felt heavily in Ulster, and a massive price was to be paid. There was a great feeling of uncertainty bubbling amongst the planters, and unease as to what the future held for them, and the indigenous population took full advantage. Like an animal sense in fear, the Irish attacked, lashing out at their perceived invaders. Thousands upon thousands of settlers were killed, many in gruesome circumstances, as the pent-up rage of the Irish manifested itself in, in scenes of horrific violence. This led to a number of years of battles and bloodshed, 
with the infamous God talker Oliver Cromwell causing shitstorms all over Ireland and seemingly killing indiscriminately. He passed an act in 1952 that gave most of the Catholic land to the Protestants, effectively reducing the ownership from 60% down to 8 I mean, no wonder they were pissed off. I mean, he either killed you and your family, or he made you homeless. It's some choice to make, isn't it? In the late 17th century, the then King of England, James II, had a bit of a scrap with a Dutchman called King William of Orange, leading to James entering Ireland and easily garnering support from the local pissed-off population. He snaked his way up through Ireland, garnering freedom fighters and made a move on Londonderry, an Ulster Scott stronghold towards the north coast. If the city fell, then so would Ulster. James rapped the door and demanded entry, but was met with a firm reply of NO SURRENDER! That's my best Ian Paisley impression right there. This became the de facto Ulster Scots battle cry, symbolising the many a never say die attitude, exemplified and personified by troops of the Ulster 36th going over the top of the Battle of the Somme in 1916 and screaming it at the top of their lungs. It was a coping mechanism, a chant that helped them excrete the fear of running headlong into into the storm of steel, a task to which copious amounts of rum also helped. Rum, to be fair, was probably involved in the notorious No Surrender Woman incident where she poked her head through the storm at windows. It, it's a must-see, and for your pleasure, a link will be included in the show notes at irreverenthistory.com slash 003. Now, the Siege of Derry slash London Derry slash Stroke City, whatever the hell you want to call it, it lasted 105 days. Its walls were thick, and they needed to be to repel James's Jacobite forces. The city itself was surrounded and starved. Dogs, cats and rats were skinned and served as dinner. If you were lucky enough to catch one, that is such was a desperation. They prayed to their god for respite. The English forces will come soon, was the whisper on weakened lips. And they eventually did come, but it was too late for many, certainly for the thousands that had perished. Those that survived declared it a victory for the Ulster Scots, a victory for Protestantism, despite the overwhelming odds they faced against the better armed and larger Jacobite forces. Some of the survivors would meet James again at the Battle of the Boyne, where his son-in-law, King William of Orange, routed his forces, with victory giving him the crown of England. One particular band of irregular horsemen played a key role that day. Those men were the Inniskilliners from Western Ulster, where they used the skills handed down to them by their forefathers to great effect. Ironically, they were the progeny of the Border Reavers, once the scourge of many an English king, and now fighting so heartily to put one on the throne. The battle is of course still celebrated today in the form of bunting, bonfires and bottles of Buckfast. It's recently been rebranded Orange Fest and it's a day for the entire province to enjoy. But, okay, maybe it isn't quite as inclusive as that just yet, but this year there were less arrests than normal, so that's progress, isn't it? The, the problem is that, there, or one of the problems is that there's a certain appeal to it. To watch in a procession, it can be quite hypnotising. The colours... The drums and flutes and tin whistles all combined and make for quite the tune. Ironically, not unlike the O'Neill's March. Probably get killed for doing that. But it's the Lambeg drum. That drum that holds most of the attention. It, it, it's, it's always the property of the modest bastard in the band. He wears it in his upper torso, like a badge of honour, a massive big badge of honour. The, the bass it produces shudders at your very heart and would have struck fear into the bellies of even the most stoic foe. Also... My kids kind of liked it, you know. Well, one did. The other cried because it hurt her ears, you know. 
Around this time in, in 1690, a famine hit Scotland and it culminated in a tidal wave of settlers arriving across the Irish Sea in the Ulster and it greatly changed the power balance in the province, skewing it heavily towards the Ulster Scots. Despite the pivotal role that they played in the war against James, they pretty much just got the shaft from the Anglicans. Their, their rapid increase in numbers had shocked the former English settlers whose, whose population was dwarfed by that of the Ulster Scots community. It led to fear, it led to resentment, and they were mistrusted and mistreated by the nervy Anglicans, as of course were the Catholic Irish. There was a policy of marginalisation with penal laws preventing them from taking any part in public society, even going as far as to illegalise their chosen ministers and illegitimise their marriages. Many felt sickened, angry, uh, betrayed. They heard stories of religious freedom in the New World, an English-speaking frontier where they could set up new homes in a vibrant and prosperous region of the world. To many of the descendants of the border reavers, it felt like another calling they just they just couldn't ignore. And like the elves leaving Middle-earth, hundreds of thousands of Ulster Scots left family members behind and sailed across the giant ocean. The largest of the numbers passed right through New York and into Pennsylvania and on to the Appalachian region, where they once again took up arms and forged a life for themselves. Those that still had the reaver blood running in their veins seemed to have found a new home at last, one where they could finally put down roots. So if you remember at the start, I said I might share a genetic link to the hillbillies, that part of the American community that is so often rebuked and maligned. Well, it seems that they stem from Ulster, from the hundreds of thousands of men and women that emigrated over 300 years ago. That is why their culture seems so familiar to me as they transported it with them. Words, music, song. It all derived from the same beginnings as many in Ulster, albeit slightly mutated and modified. They imported fiddles, tin whistles, flutes and drums, the roots of which helped to shape and form the bluegrass music scene. The name itself, Hillbilly, is a reference to, to King Billy, though some dispute this. Say it was first used much later, but no one disagrees that it is from Ulster Scots origins at some point. Remember the Scottish Covenanters, the rebels that put God before King? They wore the red cloth, well that's where the term rednecks comes from. The Ulster Scots also had a huge influence on American culture, both positive and negative. They count the famous border reaver-esque frontiersman Davy Crockett and Jebediah Springfield amongst their kin. NASCAR was derived from the rednecks building cars to transport their illegal whiskey and moonshine operations. There's also 16 of the 42 presidents, including Nixon and Jackson, singers Johnny Cash and Elvis Presley, and even the first man to walk on the moon, Neil Armstrong. The Ulster Scots ironically also played pivotal roles in the American War of Independence against Britain. General George Washington had the highest possible regard for these troops. He said, I will make my last stand for liberty among the Scotch-Irish of my native Virginia. They, I mean, they were prominent among Washington's generals. Knox, Wayne, Lewis, Morgan, Scott, Thompson, Clark, Bain and Irvine. The declaration itself is in the handwriting of an Ulster man. Charles Thompson of Mahara, Secretary of the American Continental Congress. Nowadays there's around 20 million people or so in America who claim Ulster Scots extraction, which is ironically vastly more than those that claim it in Ulster. And there's a song that shows the link between the communities of Scotland, Ulster and America. It will be familiar to many, but we'll play the famous American Civil War version, Marching Through Georgia, which is about William T. Sherman's march to the sea to capture the Confederate city of Savannah, Georgia, 1864. It's quite catchy, uh, and apparently during World War II, 
a town in England thought it was appropriate to sing it to a Southern American regiment. They tried to welcome them and it sort of went a bit awry, but maybe they were just taking the piss. Who knows? In Ulster, it has a different connotation. Probably in Scotland too, it has different connotations and you'll maybe recognise the chorus, albeit with different lyrics. To me though, it doesn't seem like a rabble rouser, more like something like Dorothy would sing as she clicks her ruby shoes and marches down the yellow brick road hand in hand with a tin man. But before it plays us out, if you have any opinions about this or any of the podcasts, you can email me at irreverenthistory at gmail.com or my Instagram is davetree69. All details of the social media is also on the website irreverenthistory.com. And if you want to rate or like the show on iTunes, that would be cool too. Just to let you know, the next two podcasts will be on the Battle of Langmark, where the Ulster 36th and the Irish 16th lost so many men, and will hopefully both be out in August. Also, just in case you were wondering, the only word I could get to rhyme with Reaver is Weaver. So that's why the title of the podcast is Border Reaver to Banjo Weaver. I mean, you could get Laver and Aver, Graver, whatever, but it just didn't work. But just the end, if you're one of the many millions throughout the world who have even the slightest trace of Ulster Scots in you, just remember that if you see one of those toothless corn chewing hicks, don't take the piss. Be nice, as they may just be your long lost cousin. Yes. Bring the good old bugle, boys, we'll sing another song. Sing it with the spirit that will start the world along. Sing it as we used to sing it, 50,000 strong, while we were marching through Georgia. Hurrah, hurrah, please bring the jubilee. Hurrah, hurrah, the flag that makes you free. So we sang the chorus.